there you have another episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. Today's guest, it's about as real as they get. It's impactful. This is not to diminish any of the stories we've had on here before, but listen to this one all the way through. The messages that this particular veteran, and he's not an American, the messages that he has to offer those listeners and those veterans who may be wanting to know more will make an impact on your life. Very powerful. I just uh, thank him for being on the show, and I thank you for listening. Your steely-eyed killer shadow in the night You were born to fight You gotta light them up My name is John Krotek, and I want to welcome you to Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. We're here to honor the wisdom of America's most valuable asset for combat veterans. We're authentic, we're empowering, we're American. Save us all burn it down. Our veteran guest for this episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, Audio Medicine by Green Zone Hero, fought for another country. It's taken me a while to get him here, but he's here now, and he's got a very interesting story. Of course, Rhodesia is now Zimbabwe, had a violent, bloody civil war, and you're going to hear about it. I'm still having an issue pronouncing his last name, so help me out here. His name is Barry... Swarstein. 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 <laughs> yeah, so it, you know, it's actually easier to say than it looks when he spells it, but but, but it, we're, we're, we're thrilled to death to have him on our show. Him and I have been playing telephone tag across continents now for several weeks, and we're finally able to make this happen. But before we get to Barry's story, I want to tell you a little bit about this man. He's actually born in southern Rhodesia, which was or was Zimbabwe. Uh, in 1953. He's a few years older than me. He had some uneventful schooling, but he really involved himself on sports uh, more than academics. And I can tell from looking at him, you can't see him, but he is definitely in shape. He went to a university in South Africa. He spent several years there training in the field of, of, of education. In 1976, he returned to Rhodesia to comply with the national service requirements and was involved in the Rhodesian Bush War. He left the war in 1977, spent a number of years living and working in South Africa before he immigrated to Australia, where he lived for several years before settling in England for a brief period of time. We're going to hear more about that. I know this story is very interesting. He's working in neurosciences now, and Barry's on this mission to to help wherever he can, help veterans uh, get on with their lives, but also to educate others about what veterans go through. And he attempted to mountain bike from Great Britain to Israel in 1984, flew there instead and spent four years developing the British Council English Language Center. So mountain bike trip turned into something very fruitful. So I kind of get that that's the type of guy Barry is. He gets involved in something and it just gets better. While he was in Israel, he developed a passion for marathon running, which then extended to ultra-marathon running after he returned to South Africa to qualify as a clinical psychologist. And this is where the neurosciences come in. There's a lot going on with this. I'm not going to paraphrase this too much more. I just want to get to Barry's story. But one thing that Barry does, which I think is pretty impressive, and it shows me a little bit about this particular man this human being this veteran is he loves to play the american indian flute the african drum and the australian didgeridoo 
that's pretty impressive. Those instruments are not easy to play, and it takes a, a, a certain type of uh, mentality and mindset to do that with rhythm. And those are cool instruments, and I, I would love to hear you play sometime. Now, he's written some books. His most recent book, Which Way Is Your Warrior Facing?, addresses the complex nature of transitioning from military to civilian life. Uh, like I said, he's on a mission to help veterans, and this is how he does it as well, through these books and through education. He also combined his first book, Which Way Is Your Claymore Facing?, set the book up as a free PDF, and he downloaded it to his website, or you can actually download it from his website. He is on a terror to help people as much as he can, academically, clinically, uh, personally. He does all of the things to help people based on his own experiences and challenges as a veteran and as a man. He embodies years of exposure to neuroscience principles and brain and body-based wisdom. And I absolutely love that. That's the way that we are trending in today's world. We're taking these traditional ancient practices that work and we're combining them with the sciences of today and i'm thrilled to death to finally get barry z here on straight out of combat radio welcome barry i hope i didn't botch that too much but uh there's a, there's a lot there but uh but thanks for being here uh, thanks mate i'm humbled <laughs> it's it's great to have you and, and i and i'm not joking ladies and gentlemen those out there listening we've been playing tag for a long time on uh linkedin and but he's here and we're here to hear his story um tell us about the z household what was it like in zimbabwe yeah well you know i was as you said i was born in uh, southern rhodesia which was a british colony so uh, we used to stand up at school for God Save the Queen. Our currency was pounds, shillings, and pence. And you know, John, at that time, our, our currency was even stronger than the UK currency. That's how prolific and prosperous we were as a nation. I always said our, our, probably our challenges as a nation were that um, we were a white minority ruling a black majority. But outside of that, there was no apartheid as it existed in South Africa. We knew nothing about apartheid until I went to university. I began university in 1972. So we had this glorious lifestyle, uh, an economy that was strong and stable. You know, my dad, uh, he came out from Romania in the early 50s. Um, he, he, was, uh, a, he owned a little store, a bottle store and a grocery store, a store. He left his parents behind in Romania and never saw his mother again. Um, his great, his uncle brought him out to avoid World War II, and uh, he settled in southern Rhodesia, um, provided an amazing living for us. Um, I went to normal big government school. It was a great life. It was a phenomenal life. But, you know, like all good things, slowly, uh, slowly um, things began to set in, and they often said we had our heads in the sand. We never realized that what we had built up as a nation – was going to collapse. And when we declared UDI, Ian Smith declared UDI um, independence, the UK began to strangle us. But um, I think we were a lot like the Israelis. What we didn't have, we made. And what we couldn't make, we stole. <laughs> so <laughs> That works, though, you know, so I get that. <laughs> there were the beginnings of a, an extremely effective military with that mindset. And then, of course, given our wealth and our agriculture and our mining um, in the 60s, 
sort of mid-60s moving up, there began to be incursions across the border. And, you know, our war wasn't an urban guerrilla warfare. You know, our war was a, um, a bush warfare. So, you know, as teenagers, I remember sitting in front of our little black and white television, and every night um, as kids, we would hear security forces regret to announce the death and following. Night after night mm -hmm. after night, seven days a week, month after month, minimum of five names a night. You know, I remember my dad, while I was at school, he'd take a rusty 303 with a, with a number of men and they would patrol the neighborhoods. I remember some, I think it was some homes had grenade screens on, on, their, on their windows. So the war gradually began to permeate into our households. So, you know, we moved from an idyllic country with an idyllic lifestyle. Um, as you said, I loved school. <laughs> I didn't like academics. <laughs> I get I that. We yeah, have we have something in common there. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah, I don't think my why my parents hadn't figured that I was failing everything that perhaps there were a few learning issues getting in the way there. I never really know. <laughs> no but, doubt. So, so I I just had to stay at school an extra year, and um, all I did was no study, and just I became a gymnast and I played squash, and that was it. Eh? So who so were the, who, were the, who were the parties involved in that, Barry? Who was who was involved in that that early part of the war? The incursions into the country or our government? Or both. What was going on there with so that? It was Ian Smith formed um, a government. There were all the po different political parties. But it was a really cohesive nation of people. I mean, we were extraordinary. And probably, I'd always describe us as one of the most open-hearted, warm and friendly people. Rhodesians had a reputation around the world. You could come into the country and be welcomed. You know, there was never this experience today where you could drop dead in the streets and people walk around you. Um, we, mm. we didn't exist like that. And I think to this day, we are a nation, probably all in our middle ages now, but we're a nation of people spread around the world that still live with an incredible generosity of spirit. The incursions, if you think about Rhodesia, there's uh, Mozambique, Zimbabwe, South African at the bottom of us. So we're surrounded by a number of black countries in South Africa at the bottom. And so from the sides and from the top, um, incursions started to be made and um, I guess that's when the war really began and, and the war was not it was not a, a war where the people were adhering to any protocols those those protocols that define engagements are very much a, a recent thing I think but it was a very savage um, war and I probably would liken it to the Vietnam War in a way in terms of the atrocities mm. that were committed so yeah, it was it was a bad war and an extremely bad time for for my country. And I think that you know you had mentioned it earlier, Barry. You know, Rhodesia was like the breadbasket of Africa. You know, yeah, you, you did you you had this agricultural and mining, and and it was really a slick economy. And when I say that, it was really well run, well managed, and and then you describe what happened. So. Did you have any, you know, was there any military background in, in your family coming along? Yeah, my dad, my dad actually was in the military as, um, around the World War II time. He, um, he actually was a sergeant major in charge of an Italian prisoner of war camp in Rhodesia. <laughs> Go work wow. That yeah, that's pretty, and pretty so, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I have actually, I have a photograph where I put myself and him next to each other. So two generations of uh, men at war. So he didn't fight, but he certainly learned to speak Italian and made a number of good mates of, of Italians. That's incredible. So so about your military service then, so you went to school, you came back, and then you were going to comply with the Rhodesian law of uh, 
compulsory no, military. Or- I, I finished school, John, and um, so I finished school in 1971. And so 72, 3, and 4, I was at my university. I did a, a, a Bachelor of Arts degree. And then, in, and then in 75, I really hadn't a clue what to do. And, and my folks said to me, uh, listen, you know, <laughs> I think what they were telling me was, you're not a rocket scientist, become a teacher. <laughs> oh, yeah. So they, they didn't say that, though. But they did say the, um, you know, what have you thought about teaching? Which was a dumb thing because, one, I don't spell very well. And I became an English teacher, which was, uh, it was a strange choice. So after four years, I finished four years of study and I said to my folks, listen, point one, I dislike high school and I still dislike high school now. And point two, I'm never going to teach in a high school. So there was an interesting dilemma. And then, um, so I was already 18, 19, 20, 21, I was 22 or 23 years old. And I got my call-up papers. Um, so I had a choice at that point. I was either going to go back or I would never have been allowed to go back to my country. I went back in. <laughs> there I was, having my hair cut off, all of it. Wondering <laughs> why. And then, and then wondering what the <laughs> hell did I do? But you know, but you had to go back though. I mean, it was in your heart. Yeah. You had to. Yeah. No, I mean, it wasn't. Uh, a lot of people didn't go back. It wasn't a choice for me. I mean, I, I have a very strong bond with my country and I certainly didn't want to be living outside of my country, never being able to go back again and also having to live with that decision. So um, for me, there was no other choice then to go back. So what was it like, man? So you so you went to college, you went to the university, yeah. then you went back, yeah. you made this decision. There you are. They're shaving all your hair off. <laughs> what do you what, what was that like? What were you thinking? You know, I still look back on it today, hey, because um, I was old. I mean, the guys I was with were 18 years old, so I was kind of an old man. Uh, thank God I, I was still fit and running fit. And um, so I thought, okay, so I did my basic training. I, I don't know. I don't know how I remember that, you know, lining up your mess tins, biting the edges of your pillows, uh, endless inspections, the usual stuff that they would have put you through back in the 70s. Doing the running and the exercise was never a problem. So I did the basic training and I actually really enjoyed it. Um, I really did enjoy it. And then I thought, okay, I'm, I'm going to be an officer, <laughs> which, you know, John, one of my learning difficulties, I have zero sense of direction. I will walk out of a building and I won't know which way to go. So, you know, <laughs> you can't make a dumber decision than to be an officer. And, and my intake was the first major graduate intake. So it was huge from university. Yeah. So on the third day of the, I made that we had the initial three day selection. So on the third day, I was still around. And as a gymnast, I'd, um, I dislocated my shoulder. And I'd had a number of current dislocations after school. And I was coming off a, a high wall. And the next thing I was on the ground on my back, and my shoulder had dislocated. So there was a lot of wisdom in the universe. So that took me out um, the officer's course. So then I, I actually didn't have a clue what to do. So I decided to do the three-month medic course, which was a, a full-on medic course. It was, I think it was designed by the Israelis. So we were able to do everything, you know, cut-downs. Um, I mean, I know a lot of the guys took part in minor operations. Past that, and then I got offered a position in a place called Wanky, which is a coal mining area of Rhodesia. And I said, guys, you know, um, when I was there, we did a gymnastics display when – uh, when I was in high school and I said, guys, I, I was allergic to coal dust. I ended up in hospital, not a good place. So they said, well, there's in Yanga. And I said, well, what's that like? I said, oh, it's really beautiful. Lots of forest and high mountains. And I went, okay, I'll go there. And I arrived, five of us turned up at, uh, 
at a place called Three Independent Company in Inyanga. Um, generally, medics of our qualification would have um, been in MI rooms. The CEO of the company said to each of us, um, I'm, I'm allocating each of you a stick and you're going to be operational for seven months. So I'd probably describe what we did as fighting medics, whereas, you know, certainly my mates who I had mates who were with special forces, others were with the commanders, and, and they did a lot of medical work. I, I did a lot of walking and some medical work. <laughs> so you are basically on patrols and things like that? Constantly. Yeah. Yeah. Seven to 10 or 12 day patrols. Yeah. Carrying, uh-huh. carrying a full medical pack draped all over me. You know, you didn't have the, um, you didn't have the webbing and the stuff like that, that you have now. So, I mean, I have bags, I have things bouncing around the back of me with drips and drugs and morphine and pethidine and, <laughs> geez, uh, you know, everything. I was a walking medical room. Walking yeah. Like a walking drugstore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so let me ask you this though. What, what do you, so you're there, you know, you're at your post, you're, you're, you're doing, can you think of anything? What did all this teach you? Being being in the army and doing the, you know medical stuff, but but what what is there anything that lesson or an incident that happened where you went holy cow, you know I'm making a difference or this this is really this is really yeah. important. I mean I think you know the thing that really helped the thing that where I, I felt I made a difference, but the outcome wasn't what I would have wanted was I think in the early hours probably about two o'clock in the morning. Um, a group of us were called out um, to an ambush. We drove into the ambush and uh, we cleared it. We shot a few ha- um, rifle grenades up into the bush. And I could see um, a vehicle burning uh, about 100 k's down the road. And and we moved in and I saw there was a, a, a one Rhodesian soldier. No, there were cops. Um, they'd been shot. They'd been driving at 2 in the morning with their headlights on and, and they'd been ambushed. And the guy was in a ditch, and um, I patched him up. And then another guy, um, he was um, about 50 meters on, on the left-hand side. He was in full-on burning. I mean, he was on fire like a barbecue. So I put him out, and um, I took him back, and I carried him in. And I remember his whole back was absolutely crispy. And I tried to work at him at about 3 o'clock in the morning, and, and he died underneath my hands. And I mean, I think what I learned there was the value of human life. I learned you know, how precarious life can be, just how important it is to do whatever you can to do something for people. And I think that quality of service was generated from my time in the military because, you know, it's a brotherhood. You, If you don't work with each other, you're in, you know, you can be in serious trouble. And also the skills of being a medic um, developed a level of confidence, but also a strong desire to be of service. And that kind of set in the middle of me for it has always sat there. I mean, it's, it's driven me not so much as a medic anymore because I can't touch people, but just in terms of the work I did and my, my journey back into thinking about what I wanted to study and eventually becoming a psychologist. Well, thanks for sharing that. You know, I just, you know, sometimes those turning points get embedded and those are the things that drive us on. How long was the compulsory service? So, I was in for about 13 months, so and then it was extended. So in January 2007, I went back, I left, and I went back to university. So from being fully operational, I was three weeks later, I was a student at uh, the University of Cape Town in South Africa. It was interesting because I couldn't understand why for about six months I, I was suffering from very severe headaches and body pain and I waking up, you know, 20, 25 times a night. 
Um, nobody, nobody knew anything about trauma in those days. I mean, there was nothing. There wasn't even the term PTSD. You know, you literally finished a war. There was no debrief. You walked out the gates. Um, and you were done. Ride. Yeah. You were done. Yeah. Uh, handed everything in and arrived um, in South Africa. Um, now, when I look at it, I was clearly having to encounter what the majority of people do, which are the transitional challenges from from the military to civilian life and for many from combat into civilian life. I mean, you know, my war compared to the war of, let's say, the SAS or the Salute Scouts or, or the RLI, I'd, I describe that as a, as a reasonably mild war. Um, but, you know, in terms of wars, it was a bad war. But, you know, when I think about what us as national servicemen had to deal with and what um, some of the more special force units and the commanders had to deal with, you know, the adjustment was um, horrific. And, you know, today we're still dealing with men and, you know, even the civilians, the farmers, people in their mid-60s and 70s um, who struggle. Yeah. So so, so, you're, so you went back to school. You were back in school for advanced training, advanced education. Uh, not quite. I think <laughs> I, I kind of lost the plot a bit. So uh, I was uh, – so what did I do? I did – Jeez, it gets blurry. So I worked. I worked in special. I worked in special ed. Uh, I went back to university. Yeah, I went back to special. I went back to university, and I did a qualification in speech and hearing defects. So all the kids who went one e Wabbit and Thammy Snake, and I was doing hearing tests, and I did that for two years uh, in South Africa. Um, and then, I mean, it was just a series of things after that, John. As, as you said, I um, I ended up um, I ended up in. Oh, geez, I was in England for a while. That's when I tried a mountain bike. Don't even ask me how or why. I have no idea. I look at a picture and I'm wearing thongs, no shoes. I have no map. <laughs> There's no comms. I have no direction. My ex-wife was on a moped and I'm on a mountain bike because I, I was working in a in a, a mountain bike company in the 80s um, servicing bikes. And I bought one of them, steel frame. How I was going to get from the UK to Israel was just inconceivable <laughs> but did, but so, so you know hey it's, it's it's a brilliant idea but sometimes execution we find out that maybe not so but but it's something to shoot for so what happened did you how far did you get did you start what, uh, yeah. What? Uh, yeah i did start uh, with the bike wobbling like crazy it was loaded way up with a guitar on top panniers but what i hadn't taken into account was for three months while i was in the uk because i actually did a second language qualification while i was there I'd suffered from pollen allergies. I was really ill, so my lungs were buggered. Yeah, And yeah. so th after three days on the road, I got to the top of a hill, and I was shaking in sheer exhaustion. My wife, ex-wife was on the moped, as fresh as hell, and I just went, oh, I can't, I can't do this. <laughs> Plan B. It's time, honey. Plan B. So that's kind of so where we you went. Uh, we put the mountain bike, went back, sold the moped, put the mountain bike on a plane. She said, uh, I want to go to Israel. Let's, I still want to go. So I said, okay, listen, uh, you know, we'll go. And so we flew to Israel and I actually took that mountain bike and I cycled with a group of folk on road bikes. We did from Tel Aviv um, to Eilat. I think it was about 360 odd k's through the desert we cycled. <laughs> that's cool man well you know but but when you got good. there but you did other things though you started some special programs down in israel yeah. yeah i was really lucky that when i got to israel having done the second language qualification the british council gave permission um for the british for the british council in israel to open an english language center i think 300 of us applied for the position and five of us 
were um, selected. And we began the center on the beach in Tel Aviv, a beautiful building where the council was. Um, and we began it from nothing, from ground up. We had no computers initially. Everything was um, hard copy stuff. And after five years, we built it to uh, the biggest, one of the most successful language schools, British Council language schools in the world. And so Brilliant. I had- that I had, work. That's good work. And for, for great years, John, I had the four amazing years in Israel. It's, that's when I started running. Now, at this time, before we get to your, I know you're an avid runner. I know you've done some incredible ultra marathons. But now, this is all after you kind of, yeah. you, you left your home country. Yeah. Rhodesia had turned into Zimbabwe. And it, it was it was hellacious there. You you basically, your family lost everything. It's, no, they did. In fact, I probably have to rewind, John, my time zone. After... 1980, I was in Australia. I immigrated to Australia. Okay. That was my first immigration year. Was there for four years, was a teacher working with autistic kids. Then after four years, I'd had a hard time. I mean, we arrived at no money, no jobs, no, no connections, no friends, no nothing. And it was tough, really tough. The work was tough. And I went, bugger this. I'm, I'm out of here. And so I left as a citizen. So thank God when I left. I had the Aussie passport, and then I was hair chopping from country to country for a while. That just amazes me how a whole group of citizenry and a, and a sovereign nation can just be yeah. turned into outcasts literally overnight. You know, with a so whole history of of so goodwill and hard work and building a country together, blacks and whites, and it just that just blows my mind. And I don't think people realize just how bad it was in Zimbabwe. Yeah, and it's a loss, John. I mean, you know, we. We belong to the land, you know, we first generation, we are of the land. We have no name, we don't belong, we have no citizenship, uh, those that are there are starving. Um, I mean, we are completely dislocated and disconnected. What a shame. It's a, you know, that's a horrible story. Hopefully things will change, you know, in Zimbabwe and hopefully they can I'm get, saying. you know, they have such natural resources, not only in people, but in, in, in assets. So, yeah. You know, my my hope is to see that get better there. So, so you you're basically disowned. You go to Australia. You go to England. You go to Israel. Everywhere you go, you're making a difference. Not only you're helping people, but you're starting programs. Then you went back to Australia, which is uh, which, yeah. Then uh, no, where did I go? I was. Um, no, I think once I left, I went. I'll be dead before I go back. <laughs> oh yeah, eventually I did. I did go back. Yeah, I was in. I was running. I was in South Africa. I I had no clue what I wanted to do. Um, I was really stuck. I mean, I I just I I thought I'd try qualify in alternative medicine, but America was too expensive. I didn't have the bucks. So yeah, I was running. I was running up a mountain, Table Mountain. I was I was doing very little, trying to work it out. I went back to my university village where my friends were now running the psychology department. And they said to me, um, you know, why don't you do psychology? And I went, uh, statistics have a problem there. And they said, no, don't worry, think about it. And that was it, eh? I had to finish off my degree. So I had to do psychology two and three in one year. And then I did an honors and then I did um, the clinical masters. Yeah, then I worked in South Africa as a psychologist, but I only came back to Australia in 2000. So I left Australia in 1984. And it took me all that time to get back. Nearly two um, decades. I was in, yeah, I was in. I was living in South Africa at the time, and um, the decision to go back. I had kids at that time, and the decision to go back was based on the fact that a number of people we knew in South Africa had been murdered, and and we didn't feel it had much of a future anymore. 
Um, my kids were all Australian citizens by descent. I'd done that well before they became South Africans. So we had to just process their mother when we came back under the spouse um, section. And yeah, we settled back here in 2000 and um, have stayed here ever since. Well, so I know, so most of your work, Barry, down in South Africa was, it was clinical work, dealing with patients. And I know you have a, you love working with veterans. Was that who you were working with or were you working with everybody? No, in, in South Africa, I was actually, I went back into schools as a psychologist. So I was a diagnostician doing IQ tests and emotional assessments. And then when I arrived in Australia in 2000, I was in Adelaide at the time, and they have what was then called the Vietnam Veterans Counseling Services. They weren't looking for anybody at that time. And I stayed there, but actually couldn't make a living there. So um, my kids and their mother at the time, we, we traveled, we, over, we drove through to, um, to Sydney. And um, I eventually, um, the Vietnam Veterans Counseling Services got permission from the government to employ external contractors because the number of people, um, kids and men and women who were impacted on by the various wars was growing to such an extent that they took external contractors on. And when they heard that I had the military background and the, and the psychological background, I think I was probably one of the first contractors um, to be taken on board. And um, and I've been there, I've been working with them. I work in a school during the day as a psychologist. And in the evening, I've been working with the Vietnam Veterans Counseling Services, which is now called Open Arms. And I've been with them for 16 years. That's fantastic. You know, and, you know, for the Americans who might be listening, a lot of people don't realize that Australia was heavily involved in Vietnam early on. Yeah. They, yeah, yeah. In fact, my whole population were, were Vietnam veterans. I, I started off with a smattering of the World War II boys who were, you know, very old men, um, but hell of a interesting blokes. And, and for many years, um, it was just um, Vietnam veteran blokes before I, I started. They started thinning out and I started moving into the Iraq and Afghanistan guys. And trauma takes no prisoners. It doesn't matter which uniform you wear. It's, it's <laughs> it, 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 you know, it, it, we're all human beings, right? So, you know, the things that we're seeing and the level of suicides and all the things that we're all working on in our respective countries, you know, it's it's invaluable for and we and Barry and I were joking about this earlier, how we can use the technology to trade information and to work together on things that are important for the human race. And, and that's what you're doing. So tell us exactly about open arms. And, you know, th this is what's interesting you about you though, Barry, you know, you were, do you were doing all of these things and this is a great example. Y you transitioned yourself after dealing with being excommunicated from your country, after yeah. seeing combat firsthand, you were dealing with all your own stuff, waking up in the middle of the night, and you still got through it. And now, and I loved your bio, it, now you're using those experiences in a way that's full on helping others. Tell us about Open Arms and the mission and, and how that impacts people's lives. So, you know, with Open Arms, I guess it was quite a journey for me because um, when I started off as a psychologist with them, um, I figured that, you know, I'd, I'd pretty much processed all the changes, all the moves, all the disruptions, all the, you know, even relationship losses. And yeah, it was a long string of disasters <laughs> and struggles after the war, as I'm sure many veterans have. And then after about two or three years, I was sitting with a bloke and he was just sharing his story and his pain and his anguish and his trauma. And this little light bulb went on in my head and it said, oh, I don't think you're as sorted out as you thought you were. <laughs> and, and that was the beginning of probably what I call humility. 
where I, I, I shifted from being the psychologist in the, in the seat and I realized that I was sitting with brothers. But the only difference was is that they were there for their story. They were not there for my story. And as I began to sit year after year with extraordinary brothers, men that I just love deeply, um, and in that interchange, I realized, as I, as I say in my book, as much as I was impacting on them, these folk were changing my life as well through who they were and the experience of connection with them and the process of healing at an obvious level with them, but internally at a quiet level with me. Um, because in a sense, I, I guess I'd, I had gone back into tribe, John. That's best that I can describe it. Um, you know, my what is the whole thing with military and what is the initial loss in the transition process is the loss of tribe. And so I was back with brothers again. And, you know, these were men that we would, they would come in and it was just like greeting. I used to get excited and I still get excited for seeing the people I see because they're brothers from a tribe across the world, across time and across generation that we still all share. So, yeah, it's been an amazing gift and one that I'm, I'm extraordinarily grateful for um, having had the privilege of being able to sit with and continue to sit with. Honestly, Barry, I've never heard it so well spoken like that and, and gives me goosebumps, actually brings a little tear to my eye. And, you know, yeah. you're so right to you're right. You know, it is the loss of tribe, the loss of purpose, Absolutely. you know, being able to share stories and, and, and of hardships, but of challenging times that we all can relate to. We speak the same language. And that's just incredible the way you said that you've just given me a very um some great ideas for the for what I'm going to call this interview, but but I, you know, so you're doing this valuable work, yeah. And then on the flip side, you're running ultra marathons. You're like a hardcore <laughs> runner, which keeps well, the you know. I was running, yeah. <laughs> kept me sane, John. <laughs> no, I know it did. I hear you, brother. And and then and then you start doing things like African drum, the yeah. didgeridoo. And, you know, the American Indian <laughs> flute. Are you kidding me? Tell me about the music, man. Tell me about the music. Um, you know, my kids often say to me, Dad, you know, you shouldn't have been a teacher or anything. You should have been a musician. I Well, guys, I, I have memory issues. And so learning large – I had learning words. It's like I've written maybe 25, 30 songs. I maybe remember half of one. <laughs> so I said, boys, you know, this is, it was never going to work. But I love music. And so – I had a mate in South Africa who actually has become quite a well-known figure working with corporates, and he plays now 200 instruments. But he said, him and I started together, and we thought, what are we going to do? Okay, we'll get the African drum. So we started playing the African drum, and then um, a few years after that, we went, well, let's extend this. And then we, I was in, I came to visit Australia. I think my brother had his had a, something going on for his kids, and while I was here, I bought a didgeridoo, and I had no clue. But I knew this, it, I felt really called to this. Um, I took it back six months driving around, you know, making funny noises, trying to get this thing called circular breathing. I got it. And then um, eventually in Australia, many years ago, uh, I walked into what was then in a warehouse and this bloke was running a community drumming circle for families. It was free, no cost involved. It's a community service. Awesome. I then took over that circle from him. It was beautiful, John. I mean, we'd invite – in fact, I even had at times some of the veterans uh, come through and because uh, drumming is a beautiful thing for people to do. It's We know it changes brainwaves. This 
I managed this circle for a number of years as we moved from place to place. And then it got to a point where I, I said to the guys, guys, you know, it's like I'm getting on you. Why don't you young boys take this over? Because I'm not going to keep doing this. An amazing friend of mine and a brother of mine um, who'd had a diving accident and, you know, has a physical disability, he'd come into the circle in his wheelchair, plonked himself next to us, and we taught him how to drum. He took over the circle, and today this circle, this tribe, is maybe 3,000 people strong. They have built it up. They have a financial resource. They have provisions for kids when they come. They sit around fires. It's a healing place. And so it is now became one of the most biggest drumming circles around. It's a really well-known circle. And uh, eventually, of course, I'm always wanting to play a new instrument. My mate who plays 200 instruments when I was in South Africa on holiday seeing my kids because uh, two of them were living in South Africa. I, uh, he showed me this American Indian flute, for a four-chamber one. Um, so depending nice. on which of the four. And so I went, oh, yeah, I love this, man. So I bought, I ordered one. What's that little piece on the mouthpiece or something? Or it looks like an eagle or something that like it gets tied to it. What is that? Uh, yeah, little- he's got, he's, well, this on my one, he's simply got, um, it's got a little wooden block which covers the holes tied with some um, leather. Yeah, yeah. And it's not, it's just the, the round mouthpiece at the top and four holes. So it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing that one hole plays the one side, one hole plays the other side, and the bottom two holes are the drone. So you can actually alternate between the drone left and right fingering on this incredible instrument. Do you have a so, flute there with you? Do you have one there in your studio? Uh, no, I don't know where it is. I was going to say, let's listen to some Carlos <laughs> Nakai, you know, but, but you know what? I know what you're saying. You know, I, I, now you just circular breathing. My youngest stepson has a didgeridoo. He's up in Asheville, North Carolina. But when I play it, it's like a duck trying to blow through a bamboo stick. But that instrument yeah. is very, that's an ancient instrument, the didgeridoo. And yeah. I've heard that it has something to do with the earth vibration is the drumming yeah, the and all. Yeah. Oh, yeah, John, I'm in the didgeridoo, um, you know, as a healing modality, playing a didgeridoo against somebody's chest or parts of their body. Imagine those vibrations coming in, but also to play the didgeridoo, you know, one of the most incredible experiences, because if you think about it, you're doing deep breathing, um, um, circular breathing is continuous breathing, you're exercising your body, you know, they say there's acupressure points around the mouth, you're working on those. I, you know, I always, I always say if, if, I, if I wasn't a musician or a runner, I probably would have been a drug addict because I'm looking for a kind of a high or a transcendent, transcendental experience. I mean, you know, I've meditated, for, I don't know, 46, 47 years. And, you know, when I sit, as I will do later today, I, I sit for two and a half hours. So, um, you know, I, I, uh, I'm driven for going into those spaces which uh, are of now and beyond now. <laughs> I love that. You know, and that's what we talked about earlier is how, you know, the cool thing about you, Barry, is you're melding these ancient practices, which have yeah. significant value for the human mindset with the, yeah. with the modern technologies. You know, we mentioned your books, and I absolutely love the title of your books. Tell us about your books. Yes. <laughs> I love these titles. I mean, which way is the warrior facing and uh, which way is your warrior which way facing, is your warrior facing and, and which way is your claymore facing? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> tell us about those. They, I love those titles. Well, you know, as, as what, what five of us um, extra did and um, all, 
um, the number of them were one special, an SAS guy, Rhodesian African Rifles guy, uh, myself, so a, a mix of mostly ex-military and um, another bloke who, driv- who, who, who was driving this forward in America. Um, we formed um, a group on, on Facebook. The goal, and, and it still is the goal behind this group, is to provide a safe place for Rhodesians, um, their families and their kids and the men uh, and anyone who fought and was impacted by on the war to be in community, to be in tribe, but also to receive support either at a mentoring level or at a more specific level. And what I started doing was I found I was um, talking to men around the world and providing as much counseling as you can give. And I was using a lot of the body-based modalities, like in America, tapping, or it's called emotional freedom therapies, very big in the military, where you tap on acupressure points and it, it does stuff to the limbic system of the brain and it works on trauma and experiences in the body. And I was writing stuff on this group and posting it. And then I thought, well, if I want to get to more people, I, I should put it in a book. And so eventually from that was born the, the little book. And the idea, I called it Which Way Is Your Claymore Facing? Because I think it, all of us coming out of Anybody who's been through adversity, anybody who's been through the war, because you know my focus is the military, has a claymore or a number of claymores sitting in a room. Some of them don't have much of an impact, or they can jump up in your forties or your fifties. You suddenly go, "Whoa!" You know, this thinking has been—it's been, facing front has been facing me, and uh, a constellation of experiences in your life joins the wire onto the battery, and boom—you know—you go downhill big time. So I thought, okay, I'm going to call it Which Way Is Your Claymore Facing? And it was a very small little book. The idea was it was a book that any bloke, a male or female, could stick in their back pocket. They could read. It had lessons from running that I, that I learned and the wisdom that came from running. It, had, it, it used its foundation. It used operational terminology to teach stuff to the guys. And, and so to this day, when a guy walks in my room, I go, listen, mate. He's neglecting himself. I go, you're eating, you're eating rubbish, you're drinking, you're not exercising, you're putting on weight. I, I said, tell me what happens when you don't do a pull-through in your weapon. He goes, well, you know, I'm going to get an AD or I'm going to get a stoppage or um, I'm going to get a runaway gun. And I go, so the same thing applies for the human body. If you're not doing your pull-throughs, you're heading for a stoppage or an AD, and which is exactly what's happening to you now. So are you willing to do pull-throughs? And then I talk to them about trauma being in the body. So, you know, there's aspects of CBT, there's body-based, there's brain-based modalities um, I use with the guys. And so the book is informed by, by all of that. It put everything together in a quick, easy-to-read book. And I had that published with, with Amazon as a Kindle and, and, and a hard copy. And then I realized I was working a lot more over the last few years with the transitional process. I'd never thought about how complex the transitional process is. There are layers upon layers upon layers. And, and a lot of them were not being identified. And I'm still not sure that the layers of the transitional territory are, are really understood and outlined as clearly as they should be. So people know what they're walking into. It's like a map with a compass that's not quite there and a map that's still not quite formed. And so about a year ago, I put out the manuscript, which way is your warrior facing? Because I didn't want to focus on the the destructive impact of operations. I wanted to look forward. So as a warrior, how are you moving forward? And, and my core thing was, you know, as warriors, we choose never to leave a man behind. So why are we leaving ourselves behind when we transition into civilian life?
And my message to veteran was, you need to go back. You need to go back to reclaim your warrior. You need to leave behind those parts of your warrior that are not going to work. And you need to bring the values and the attributes of the warrior and the strengths and the resilience and take it into your transitional journey and take it into your civilian journey. Because it's the same thing, you know, look at your arcs of fire, become situationally aware. All the tools in an operational world exist in the transitional process. And so I put this book out and then a number of guys have been saying to me, I distributed about 3,000 of them over the last year, um, predominantly on LinkedIn. And then people were saying to me, you know, look, we'd really like a hard copy. So just about two months ago, I found a, a publishing company in America um, for self-publishing. I have to now, I, I'm going to rewrite both books completely. I want to look at, I want to divide it into in-territory, which is while you're in the territory. I want to divide it into the transitional process, and I want to divide it into the civilian territory. Each are discrete territories with different operational protocols. Um, so I'm starting to rewrite the book, and I therefore have to remove the one that's available at the moment on my website, the Warrior book. But this book, which is going to be um, a blend of everything I've done, I'm going to call from, I think I'm going to call it something like from, um, no, Warrior to Civilian, a transitional manual for veterans and current serving. So I'm focusing on the transitional aspect. Um, so I'm starting to work on that book now. It's going to take me a couple of months because my time's limited. And then I'll have a hard copy and a Kindle. And as I've done with my first book, I'm going to try and keep the costs down to the minimum. Because the idea is not to make money. The idea is to have books and Kindle copies available to all. So, yeah, so the new one is The Warrior. It's like dealing with The Warrior, John. The Warrior is an incredible man, even the traumatized warrior. I sit down with guys and we identify who they were. It's to recapture dignity, identity, and your strengths. That's incredible, Barry. That, that you know, to be able to take those real-time experiences, I'd call it real-time transition, authentic transition, and then to put it into a book that's that, that people can understand is going to make all the difference in the world for so many people's lives. And that's awesome. You know, I know you work primarily with veterans. Um, yeah. Let me ask you this. What, you know, what do you, you – because you've worked with thousands of veterans – what do you yeah. want the civilian population in particular to know about veterans and especially combat veterans? Yeah, so, you know, it was actually interesting. I was in, um, many years ago, I was in a, um, it was in a, it was a, a conference for um, people were, who were, who were supporting veterans and, and a woman stood up and she said, and this was a woman, by the way, who worked in the health profession. And she said, but they all killers. And I looked around, and I mean, I was on the edge of just getting up and going, you need to remove yourself from this room now. You have no right to work with this population. And mm -hmm. I guess what I want people to know is that, you know, veterans and combat veterans, um, men and women, are probably the warriors of, of our time. And by warriors, these are people that have traveled to the very edge and stood at the edge of life and death. And at the edge of life and death, they have come out with impeccable values of service, of sacrifice, of other. They come out with strengths because they've been tested to the core of themselves and they've walked through the fires and they come out with their wounds. But the wounds do not determine and do not define the warrior. 
the wounds are what the warrior carries, but it is not who they are. And when we separate the alcohol, the homelessness, the depression, the anxiety from the warrior, we are looking at extraordinary human beings. And when we start to understand that, we also give these men and women back their dignity, back their identity, and we help return them to their warrior. So that's a message that I really want to give out. I got to tell you, brother, that is um, talked to lots of veterans over the years, and, and that was very powerful. And I can't imagine uh, um, that's one of the best messages I've ever heard to the civilian world. I mean, <laughs> leaves me kind of speechless, actually. And that's hard. That's hard to do, um, <laughs> literally. But, you know. Let's just say there's a there's a, a a young person or you know even somebody that's transitioning that spent a good portion of their life in the military, a man or a woman, yeah. and they're in a dark place and yeah. and they just happen to to hear this story, your story, and what would you say to them? I'd say to them, there's a couple of things. I'd say I hear that you're suffering, and I understand that. I'd say that your suffering doesn't define who you are. It's just what you've brought back with you. If you hold that what you've brought back sits in your body and sits in your mind, and at the moment I understand that it's creating pain, you are not alone and that there's a tribe around you. It is up to you to reach out to your mates and to that tribe. It is up to your mates to reach out to you, but do not be alone. And in reaching out to that tribe, I would say I encourage you to step into the healing journey. Along the way, you may face the darkness of what you carry, the pain of what you carry, the loss of what you carry, and the grief of what you carry, but it is just a patrol. And if you're given a map of the territory and an internal compass, you will transition through that territory as you have done at war, and you will emerge out reformed who you are as a fine man, a fine woman, and a warrior. And it's not to give up hope and look in the mirror and understand that who you were is still who you are. That's what I'd say. Fantastic, Barry. Um, that's a very powerful message, just like the other one. It, let me ask you this. What does freedom mean to you? And do you have a personal quote that you've made up yourself? based on all of your experiences and dealing with the things you deal with, can you give us a personal quote and, and what does freedom mean? You know, I think freedom is not about having a life that's easy, John. Um, our life challenges us. I mean, you know, I often say I probably spent the first 60 years of my life at war. <laughs> it's like, you know, after the army. I, 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 I hear you, man. I, I, I had several losses of relationships and changes and moves and and some of them were deeply painful and took me to deep hard edges you know as I processed grief but freedom for me was the ability to know that even in the darkness I still had room to move and even if that room to move was putting on some running shoes and taking my pain and everything that I was carrying and heading up into the mountains and in nature, I still had room to move. And so I realized that freedom is its an internal understanding. And, you know, we see that in like guys from the concentration camp where even those in the midst of the darkest night 
still held onto a light. It could be one's personal faith. It could be your spirit, your spiritual journey. It could be just a sense of something you do that transcends the darkness. It's an internal decision. It's an internal space that we grow. And I think freedom comes from there. And, you know, the thing I always use is look at the SEAL team, Hell Week. Everything. You are taken well beyond the edges. So what is personal freedom? It's to know that you still have power in the middle of your darkest night. That's what personal freedom is for me. I just keep getting all this great wisdom, and, and it's powerful, it's meaningful, it's beneficial, and it's true. And when you speak from the heart like you have, Barry, there's nothing else that matters. It's the heart. And you have definitely got a lot of heart. Um, amazing. Thank you for that. And let me ask you, how can – and I don't mean any disrespect. I have a hard time with yeah. last names. In fact, my last name has been botched so many times. So I, I, so I hope I can <laughs> – so I can. I hope I can call you Barry Z and you don't think anything yeah, of no, it. Yeah, that's but, cool. No, I'm cool. Mate. But how can, how can people – Get a hold of you, find out more information about your books and as you're proceeding. And, you know, if you could give out that information, your websites, your tribe page on Facebook, emails, phone numbers, whatever you want to give out and the titles of your books or where they can get them. Can you share that with us? Yes, I think um, uh, LinkedIn is probably the thing I use a lot. I've also got a website, which is www. Barry's Zwaristin, which is B-A-R-R-Y-Z-W-O-R-E-S-T-I-N-E.com. And on there, they can send me messages. They can send me a voice message. The the Kindle book and the hard copy of Which Way Is Your Claymore Facing um, are there. And it's re I reduced it down to the minimum that Amazon would allow. The PDF, I'm going to have to remove quite soon because it, it'll be in contradiction of, of putting a book out. The book will be advertised there, but the link for that once it's done will be um, with the publishing company. I think they've – I have to still work out how that's done, but everything will be on the website and on LinkedIn. And and really, you know, if guys want to contact me – I've had guys contact me. They want a discussion and, you know, within limit because I push 10-hour days, um, three days a week um, at, at between my school and, and my veteran work. And so my days are very long. But I'm always ready for a conversation, and LinkedIn is probably the best way to connect with me as well. I mean, that's become the thing I use the most. So, yeah, guys are always welcome to contact me there, anybody. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I, I got to tell you, I, I'm, I'm amazed at the work that you're doing. I'm so happy that you um, – that you survived all of those challenges because um, I know <laughs> what's in, I know what's inside your I know what's inside you and and you you make you inspire you motivate you're touching lives uh, people that I don't know but but and people listening that we both don't know I know that your mission and your message today is extremely invaluable to humankind all over and I got to tell you mate with this your experiences and your wisdom is 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 global it's universal and it's i would say it's spiritual and god-given and i'm um i'm humbled to to finally get you on the show and uh let's get the word yeah. out there and let's continue on and, and i just gotta say thank you from the bottom of my heart for being here barry on on our radio show yeah, no, thank you, John. And again, thanks for the opportunity. I mean, you know, you and I, will we are uh, we're reasonably close to each other, but 
you know, we're a tribe. And, and when this tribe from all around the world starts to connect and share stories and, and share healing, um, we're just better off for it. So I'm forever grateful for being in the presence of people like you and all the men and women that I've sat with over the years. Well, thank you. And you know, we're not joking. When I make it down to Australia and uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> another Aussie, we had uh, uh, Scott Jackman, who does the uh, the Whiskey's Wish, who you know, um, we, we smoke and we joke and we say we're going to go to Alice Springs and have a pint. So it's on my bucket list. Uh, the universe I know will deliver. And I, I can't wait to meet you in person, mate. And as soon as we get this out, we'll give you all the links and uh I just appreciate you being here and sharing your story with us and helping others. Well, brother, always welcome. When you're here one day, um, there's a bed. Um, the whiskey part, you know, I'm, I didn't say this one, but I'm a raw food vegan. So, uh. <laughs> well, I could, you know, you know, I actually gave up alcohol in January, but uh, but it's all good, man. But uh, but, uh, but I'll have a green juice while um, we do whatever. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing you face to face. It'd be great. You know, the invitations here as well. You ever come to Florida in the States? You know, I live on the West Coast, the beautiful Gulf of Mexico, and you're welcome in my home anytime. Yeah, because my friends, I think, are in Sarasota as well, I think. Um, so he's a psychologist. Well, you know, have, think, him, have, have him link with me. You know, we'll, uh, we'll, yeah. we'll go share a coffee or something. But, <laughs> but thank you for the opportunity, John, and for really persevering as we bounce between messages. I really appreciate the space that you've given me. Before they burn it down. Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine from Green Zone Hero. If you liked what you heard, then tell others about us. Like us and download us. And please remember, freedom is not free, and combat veterans are vital assets. They're not broken.